0: Hello and welcome to ClapperCast, a weekly discussion of all things cinema. I'm your host, Editor-in-Chief Jack Luke Sharp, and today I'm happy to be joined by Kyle Gaffner. Hello. George Lewis. Hello. And Rory Marsh. Hi there. We are dedicating the entirety of today's episode to Christopher Nolan's latest film, Tenet. It's going to be a supersized one-off roundtable discussion and event podcast for the event film of the year. All of our contributors today have seen it, so let's go straight into it. We all believe we would run into the burning building. But until we feel that heat,
1: we can never know. You do. You chose to die instead of giving up your colleagues.
2: That test you passed? Not everybody does.
0: Welcome to the afterlife. And with only one word, tenet, and fighting for the survival of the entire world, the protagonist journeys through a twilight world of international espionage on a mission that will unfold in something beyond real time. George, you've got the honours of this week to open up. Uh, fire ahead.
2: I mean, it's probably the biggest film of the year. I think we all agree on that. And then, so I was massively hyped for him. A huge Nolan fan. I know he's going through a little bit of a, a sticky spell with a film on Twitter and stuff, which we'll go into. But So I was still really excited for it. And I come out of it. And I liked it. I definitely didn't love it. It's got massive issues. I think more so than... Some of, his, some of his best work. I think going into it, it's best to just watch it. I hate using this term normally. But it's, it's best to just experience it and not think about it too much. But I think when you think about it too much, which we will get into, I don't think it actually stands up to that much scrutiny. So as a concept, I think did when it was quite a pared down uh, spy thriller in the first act. So there's a lot of exposition in the first act, but it does move along at a brisk pace. And I really kind of enjoyed it for that, for the with the set pieces, the costumes, the, the locations. That's where I was really enjoying it. And then the more and more that this time inversion thing comes into it, the more kind of underwhelmed I was by it. And I don't think that the time concept is, A, explained well enough, B, as a consequence of that, interest enough to kind of, bring all of these themes together, all of the espionage. And then by the end, I was kind of like grappling to understand it, which kept me engaged. So I was never bored, even after two and a half hours. It does like kind of fly by. After I was watching, I was thinking like, I didn't actually glean much from it. I was kind of, it was kind of just like playing in front of me and I was enjoying this spectacle. But when we go into like some of his other work, it's definitely like not as like narratively impressive, it's still technically impressive as we'd expect but I think it doesn't have that you know those just big moments like Inception has or Dark Knight has especially with character as well which again we'll get into I think everyone will say something about the, the characters in this so for me it's like it's a good film it's messy incredibly messy and uncharacteristically messy for Nolan but while it was on I did enjoy it but I don't think it's I don't think it's going to stand the test of time. I don't think it's going to make that much of a lasting impression, even for Nolan's biggest fans, like me. I think it's quite low in his rankings of filmography. So that's my initial impressions. I kind of let everyone else introduce theirs.
3: I'm on a pretty similar level to you, I think, George. I'm I'm a big fan of Nolan. I wouldn't say I'm a Nolan fanboy. Me and my mate at home have got this constant, ongoing debate between... Denis Villeneuve and Christopher Nolan as the kind of the greatest spectacle filmmaker of their generation. I'm very much on the Denny side, but I mean, I, you know, I do obviously enjoy all his films. My main issue with Tenet, yeah, as you said, there are just no characters here. They're all kind of cutouts, pawns that are used to progress the plot. And Nolan's films have always had this kind of, in general, priority of kind of establishing this complex plot over developing characters particularly deeply, obviously you know, it depends from film to film, but in general, he tends to prioritize these kind of mind-bending ideas and explaining that to the audience over human stories. And when you have no characters, the simplest explanation as to how it makes the audience feel is disconnection. You're not really given a huge reason to root for these characters except for the kind of stigma that you would in like a 60s James Bond movie. It's like, you've got to root for these characters or the world ends. Like, it's about as basic as that. That being said, I think there are some really strong performances. John David Washington as the protagonist. I didn't even realise he didn't have my name until <laughs> I looked up and I'll do it after, but he's literally called the protagonist. He's given no name. So if you want to realise how little character work there is in there, that's pretty much as good an explanation he's going to get. Elizabeth Debicki's strong. I mean, she tends to be pretty set on everything, and she puts in a similar performance to something like... Um, widows here, like a very kind of downtrodden housewife who gets, you know, revenge on the husband figure, I suppose, or tries to. But Robert Pattinson was the standout here for me. I think he's uh, just very charismatic and likable. And when you've got a film that gives the characters no development, all you have to rely on is really a strong performance to get the audience to root for them. And I think he does that quite well. A lot of critics say that, Nolan prioritizes kind of scope and spectacle over substance. And I think that's the case again here. And whilst there are some big like action sequences with huge scope and things like that, I think the main issue here, he goes for like ideological spectacle and he tries to kind of introduce these super high concept ideas. But initially, as you were saying, they're introduced quite in a rushed fashion. And in a sense, I wrote my Letterboxd review that it kind of gives the impression at the start, I was thinking this is giving the impression of what it's like to fight a kind of unknowable foe. And I thought that was quite interesting as in these protagonists don't know what they're fighting against. But then as the film progresses, you kind of understand that he just hasn't really explained it very well. And sometimes it feels like no one's kind of delighting in just confusing the audience and (laughs) making himself feel a bit cleverer than the rest of us. But uh, yeah, I do think he really prizes like these high-concept ideas over everything else, and that's particularly evident here. Hans Zimmer isn't scoring this one, but I thought, is it Ludwig Gorenson is replacing him? I thought his score was really good. Uh, a lot of people have been citing that, but I mean, the Hans Zimmer-Christian and collaboration has been a pretty long-standing thing, and I thought I'd feel Zimmer's absence here, but I think he's replaced very well. And as I said uh, the action sequences in here pretty well done. I think Nolan's getting better and better at shooting action. Obviously, his his films sometimes feel a bit like uh, like a Mission Impossible. Like every time he makes a film, he's got to top it in the next one. So you know he does the truck flip in The Dark Knight, followed by like you know the beach getting attacked in Dunkirk, followed by it's in the trailer the plane crashing into a building in this one, and I think whilst he does like to think of himself and whilst I do think of him as this kind of very ambitious filmmaker, there is that kind of primitive nature to him where he's just got to keep getting bigger, bigger, bigger with his action sequences every time and argue with his ideas as well. So I think it's a really interesting film, a really engaging, entertaining film, but I'm struggling to work out if it's really high concepts, kind of intellectual ideas that you need to watch a few times to understand or if it's just nonsense. I'm just going to probably
0: echo uh, you, George, and, and you, Rory, here. I think just probably with more a cynical and pissed-off attitude because, to, for me, this is the same shit different day with Nolan. And I don't want that to come across that I think he's a terrible director because I think a lot of people get that just because the people I'm not his biggest number one fan. Um, I'm going to keep this quite short and then I'll go into a little bit specifics when everyone else um, says that because I think there's a lot here um, that, that both these souls alluded to that I think, have major repercussions throughout this film. But I think, as a cinema experience goes, th- this is a, a terrific film after, what, six, six, five, six months for a lot of people, even more so now, can't even return to watch this. So for those who are lucky to have, uh, have been able to go back to, to a cinema to see something like this, I, I think it's a great film uh, to establish that return. Again, as you said, Roy, I think the score from Lud- Ludwig Göransson, I, I think that is simply tremendous. I don't know if this is contextually what he's trying to achieve, or it's the horrific sound mixing and sound design that we'll touch on a bit later, but it's so thunderous and dominating. It it, it, it is genuinely something to behold in in an auditorium, it just echoes wonderfully. Um, I also think that for for one of the very few times um, in a Nolan feature, I was relatively surprised with how well the camera is framed as well. I think I think it, it looks really nice. There's a lot of space between between character and and setting. It's one thing that I found slightly refreshing. Although I'll get on to the sort of the third act, which I think again is genuinely an abomination. But we'll, we'll move on to that a bit a bit later. I'll just move on to a few more positives if I get on to a, a, a bit more negatives. But again, I will keep this brief. I think John David Washington here, and I mean I, I've seen his, his rise through Ballers on HBO, which I think he, he, he's, he's been a small but integral piece to that. And, and throughout the last few years, especially with Black Klansman, he's been on this really uh, skyrocketing trajectory. And this feels like a step I would have I felt was a little bit too quick for him to do, right, considering his filmography. But he is terrific here. Like, I've seen a lot of you know, behind the scenes footage of him, of him doing his own stunts, He's down with the concept straight away. He has no issues, just flinging himself in there, getting the job done. And he's the epitome of cool throughout. I just don't think Nolan gives him enough material to really put forward charisma. And I think, as you said there, Rory, I didn't know his name throughout. I was slightly petrified if that was going to be a twist in itself until it was revealed that he was the protagonist, which I think is a massive red flag. But again, we'll move on to that a little bit later. But that was something that I felt... Went against Washington throughout the film. And I think throughout the characters also have the same issue. But I think out of the three main characters, well, four, if we count Branner, I think he, well, Branner, I think is in his own little world. But here, I think Washington survives the most out of the three and comes out relatively unscathed regarding character death. But again, this is a film, as I said before, same shit, different day with Nolan, and it's not a, it's not a film without fall. Again, the sound design, I think, in the sound mixing, whoever did that, I, I, I genuinely it scares me to death that the, that they could witness that and not have a migraine or, or so far, an aneurysm listening to that. It was so like loud beyond belief. But there's multiple scenarios that I know we'll touch on where the audio is just. To say that you can't scratch against the surface of it to understand what they're saying is, is generally an understatement. But I think my issue generally throughout Northern's Filmography is this just constant, excessive, over- and severe indulgence in scientific jargon. It started with Interstellar, and, and from that it just hasn't stopped. I feel, uh, Ever since inter- Inception, I think he hit his magnum opus, and he had to, and Rory's alluded to this, uh, As well so i don't want to step on your toes but he has this issue where he wants to sort of overstep his previous achievement and there's something to sort of be in awe about that but there's also something that you it's slightly ridiculous it's trying to evolve on on something that genuinely will just it'll just fail and i think after doing inception and to do The Dark Knight rises. I think he, he, he cut corners in the third act, most definitely, with, regarding screenwriting ability with his brother and David S. Goya. Them two are gone now. And then you have something like Interstellar, which I think is generally just a derivative mess. Then you have Dunkirk, which is again underwritten beyond belief. And he has this fascination with time, which is now a recurring theme throughout his work, which again is quite boring at this point. Then you get to this, And I think it's just a a culmination of all the mess that that Nolan's worked up towards and put it in one film. I don't think the whole film's a mess, but undoubtedly, I think this is probably, out of all the blockbusters he's made, this is his worst one. And when I say worst, I don't mean that as an understatement. I generally think this is his most flawed.
1: Yeah, my thoughts are pretty similar to what everyone said so far, so sorry to not be devil's advocate or anything, but they're very similar. I probably would consider myself quite a big Christopher Nolan fan. I'm not a diehard for him. I'm not going to take anything he makes and just write it off as a masterpiece. He clearly has many flaws in his filmmaking, but like we've said, I think um, the sheer spectacle that he's able to achieve, and especially it definitely helps the fact of not being in the cinema in six months, as Jack said, that seeing something with this kind of craft behind it and these effects and this kind of vast story is a great film to see the first time you're going back to cinema and without getting into specifics when it first started I was ready to love it just the music which we've said is so good and it just starts off although you, you notice the sound mix is going to be a problem at the start because it's so loud but it kind of works at the start because of this great action set piece which is in all the trailers and the music's kind of thumping through, the gunshots really feel like they're there, and it sets up this really interesting premise. And then, from for me, from then on, it just goes in this kind of downward trajectory, apart from when there's an interesting action set piece, which it's almost as if there's any time there's a character speaking on screen, it's just when the film doesn't work at all for me. Any time it's a set piece, it feels like Christopher Nolan's really, you know, as you were saying, he's made he's really learned how to shoot action and he's become a master to almost there's no shaky camera anymore and there's some really interesting choreography which you've seen in the behind the scenes footage that how they did these fight scenes but we can maybe get into that later but the script is just constantly dragging it down for me it's and I like confusing films I think Christopher Nolan has clearly got this obsession with it even and he said in interviews about this he likes to have it that the audience don't understand what's going on he likes to be one step ahead but it's not often I leave a film feeling stupid that I had that I'd missed something and I keep playing the film over and over back in my head like I've missed something and it's so hard to explain because I understood what was happening I understood okay this was where the plot started this is where the plot ended but why and what and even why we were in certain places just made no sense to me which can be okay if the characters were interesting but again they're not interested regardless of how good the performances are like I think John David Washington is so good in this he he has these scenes where he's desperately trying to give his character some charisma there's these fight scenes where he's just the, the like, inflections he does the way he even he hits people has just this great charisma behind it and you're watching like I can't wait to get some depth around this character but there's just nothing given to you and I can't wrap my head around why as a filmmaker, you would think having a character with so little backstory, any relationships, is a good idea. But they still expect you to buy his relationship with the love interest in the film and Elizabeth Debecky, who, again, is a good performance. But I just, once they start showing, okay, we're going to have this character and this character to have a connection, but we're going to give you no reason to be invested in it. We're just going to hope, as Rory said, that you care about The world's ending and that should be enough for you to care about the plot which it isn't because you don't know really much about the world either but I won't say too much more until we get into specifics but um, overall just like the score was the highlight as we've said the sound mixing is a complete joke and it's just become like farcical at this point that you go see a Christopher Nolan film expecting the sound mixing to be bad so it's hard to even complain because it feels like he's in on the joke or something sometimes but the film just feels like a complete mess. But that's not to say, I don't think this is a bad film. It's just, it was a disappointment for me. I, if somebody enjoyed this film, I completely understand it. And I would re- I still recommend it to people. I've told people that although I didn't enjoy it, I still think if you're going to go to the cinema, you should go to see this film because it's worth seeing on the biggest screen possible. And the loudest speaker at your own risk, maybe take earplugs. But
3: um, yeah, that's my initial impressions. I agree that this is like an infinitely like, or inspiring cinematic experience. Like if you're gonna watch a film in the cinema this year, it should probably be Tenet. Obviously that comes with its own risks and concerns for a lot of people, which is very understandable, but this is like the, the film to watch in the cinema this year. Moving on from what you were saying, Carl, about the kind of action sequences, and this it, this is kind of elaborating on how poorly explained it was because it did make me feel a bit stupid, but sometimes action sequences would start, I don't want to say too much, but there is a scene on a highway where Robert Pattinson and John David Washington are after something, and the action sequence was starting and gearing up. And this is what Carl was saying about kind of understanding what's going on, but not the whys and whats of it. So action sequences would sometimes start, and I don't know if this is because it wasn't explained or the sound mix was blocking out the dialogue, which it does actually irritatingly quite a lot. But these actions, this action sequence in particular, started. And I found myself sitting there understanding the inner machinations of what the characters were going to do, but not exactly why they were doing it. This scene on the highway began and I, had, I was enjoying it because it's a crystal known action scene. So, you know, the scope is great and everything. But I had no idea why they were doing what they were doing. Not for a plot reason or because it's against their character, just because I had no idea like what they were after and what the goal of this sequence was. I don't know if
2: you guys felt that, but... That was just bizarre to me. This is my biggest problem with it. so I'm sure we'll get into more like specifics of the plot later. It's not like you don't watch this film and you're like completely baffled by certain directions they take. so there's there's one in particular that I think you can kind of guess from an earlier thing, but it's not from the rules of the world. it's where you get it's like an edu- educated guess of where you think Nolan will go. So you're more like, kind of, on your knowledge of like prior films that tackle these things, like predestination and stuff like that, you're kind of hedging your bets to where you think it will go. But it's, it's not based on any of the rules within this world because they're not explained that much. When people say this is a film, the dialogue is entirely exposition. It is, but it's not exposition on the, the actual time loop. It's exposition of the plot on World War Three. So, I mean, I'll end up comparing this a lot to Inception because I do think they're quite similar. You have this high concept and then you have the side plot, and then the way they merge together. I think Inception, so you have the entire sequence where Leonardo DiCaprio is with Ellen Page in Paris and then we, we work out how they infiltrate the dreams, what they can do with them. With this, I don't think the inversion is... I don't think it's a rock solid foundation to then base action sequences like later in the film around. What I've always liked about Nolan is, I don't think his action sequences are always the most mind-blowing in terms of scale. But what I always really liked about them is that they're rooted in the rules of the world. So if we think about Inception with the rotating corridor, there's a reason why that corridor is rotating because there's a, An event in the layer above on the dream that's causing this to rotate. And what I always like is that they're they're grounded in these rules with Tenet. They kind of make sense, but not enough. So you'll have like a car going backwards and two coming forward, which looks cool, although I don't think it looks as cool as what Nolan thinks it does. Because anyone who's been on Snapchat for like, I don't know, four years knows what like a reversing, what you can do with like reverse filters and and I might correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think Nolan's got Snapchat. So for him, it's probably a new thing. But my problem is you have this like, disconnect of the really like big idea of the time. And then you've got the really simple kind of love story that doesn't work for me at all. And then they don't mesh together. Whereas I think in Inception, you have the, the kind of big dream sequences, the paired back like, emotional beats of Leonardo DiCaprio and his ex-wife. And then you also have the stuff with uh, Cynthia Murphy and his father, which is the core idea of the highest. But the reason why that works is, is because this emotional stuff works and then it marries up with the, the big concepts. In Tenet, the big concepts A, aren't explained well and then they don't mesh with the kind of emotional beats. So by the end of it, you're thinking it's like it's overcomplicated and then there's parts that are too simple as well and then it never quite comes together. And then you've got a really basic idea of World War Three, which I never find inspiring particularly. But I'd much rather he fleshed out the time stuff more and I think of an interesting way to introduce it rather than just like blanket, oh, the world's going to end stuff. Because with the World War Three stuff, you can kind of just put anything in and which I think he's done, he's like, he's go well, the end of the world, so they can be as big as they can, but there's no, like, kind of, there's no reason for these things, so there's, like, a big battle at the end, which is really impossible to follow, but it's like, you can just go, well, it's World War 3, that's at stake here, so we're going to have a big battle, we're going to have like a plane going in and stuff like that, so it never, I don't think it quite succeeds in explaining its own rules especially some of the editing choices as well so some of it feels like it's deliberately trying to confuse you which in these kinds of films I don't like because part of the satisfaction for being an audience member is that you understand it part of the satisfaction of Inception is that each stage of the heist is well explained you know what's going on if this is going to be confusing you need way more drama you need way more convicting emotional beats to make up for that ambiguity, whereas it isn't here, so all you're left with it's like a really undeveloped emotional side and character side with a confusing plot, and it, so it never quite reconciles the two things.
0: Oh, I don't know really where to go from here, but um, I'm just if I if I sound like I'm I'm going on a, on a rant, I do apologize. And um, just listening from the both of you there, I think you've highlighted probably my two biggest problems, which is the lack of drive, lack of depth, and the story. And I think if I just go off Rory's first. It is interesting to sort of point out from this prologue we have, that, there's, that we have sort of this scene that feels far from the cloth. But eventually, knowing Nolan's um, little tricks, it all becomes relevant. But from that moment forward, I don't think anyone could in the film could explain to me, especially the character itself, why John David Washington's character had the drive to do what he does. I don't, I don't know why. Well, I just don't understand why it doesn't for 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 country like it, the the I just don't I don't understand whatsoever. I I don't think the film conveys that in any other way except for being flat and non-existent. Patterson's character, Granted, has probably the slimmest amount of drive, but even then, that's just babble jargon at the end, which is revealed to be this bullshit little um, two-second exp- expositional piece of dialogue that doesn't do anything for the audience the only character that has any drive in this film well two characters is kenneth brunner's character and elizabeth becky's character now how the two of those the, the, those there i think that elizabeth de character probably has the biggest drive the biggest emotional drive but her character is written in the most one no not offensive I wouldn't say that, but the the most one-note, ignorant, baseless woman needs to protect um, child character arc I've probably seen in in some time. It's so baseless and redundant and and slim-lined. I think to give a a character and an actress of that magnitude such little depth there, to not do anything else but to be a protective mother, is quite condescending. And Branagh, I think in in my honest opinion, he he was the most worried I was going to be in this film. Because I just felt that, and we were going to get a Jack Ryan shadow recruit part to Russian oligarch Belina villain, frightened me to death. However, he probably shows the most drive, venom. But I think that, that the, the his base of doing what he does in this film again, and I'll touch on the depth, so the narrative, what George said, because I think that's a crucial issue of his um, of the characters anyway. But I think his drive is very interesting. But again, it comes way too little, too late in the film to actually care. Because for about, let's say the film's an hour and 45... Sorry, two hours and 45 minutes. A Nolan film, an hour and 45. Lord forbid. Um, let's say it's 2.45. We probably find out Kenneth Branagh's character's whole ideology at 2.30. Just too little, too late to give a shit. And then regarding... the, the The the, the overall issue here is the narrative. Now, I alluded to it at the beginning, but I'm just tired of this excessive scientific jargon. If you want to root a world in believability, that's fine. But if you have to just stress it constantly to be fine by it, that's boring. I don't go to the cinema to have a a physics lesson. If I did, I'd go and sign up for it at Oxford. Not that we would get in but I'd still wait out the door and listen. To, you know what I mean? Like, why do I have to go to the cinema to be taught by Nolan, who is a director, who has got a passing interest in science, to have that as a basis of, of his film? I, I, don't, I don't go to Armageddon. and want every single detail to be airtight and NASA applaud it. It's probably the most insufficiently ever told film. And I think it's actually a joke at NASA that they make people watch to, like, uh, to you know, count how many plot holes the film has. With this, if I'm having to have a fucking exposition dump about inversion, which happens roughly 95 times throughout the film, you're going to get, ironically, the immersion for myself, I'm just going to disappear one by one. And the first laboratory scene where we find the wall and we find the, 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 the sort of scene that's in the trailer where John David Washington is, is told in a briefing about inversion. I just sat there and just thought, this is it, isn't it? I'm going to have no idea. Now we spoke about a few weeks ago, and I me, think me and Lena stressed this, is that when we watch "She dies tomorrow" by Amy Simon is that I felt stupid after I watched it. Now, on, 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 on hindsight watching this, I don't feel stupid watching "She dies tomorrow. I just feel like I didn't gel with the material. Um, here, this is generally something that will make the average audience stupid. Now, if you want the whole point of what Nolan's trying to do is he's trying to elevate material to a degree where he's trying to justify that he is the smartest person in the room and everyone else who, who doesn't understand it must then be in awe of something that they can be educated of. Now, to me, that is the antithesis of what cinema is. The whole point of art and cinema is to be entertained, regardless of how entertaining it is. That is the slimmest and baseline of things. You can go into any film, you can go into Antichrist and you can find a certain amount of entertainment there regardless of depending on if you like horror. Here, I fail to see what's entertaining because ultimately, with how the narrative goes forward, and again, it's an issue that Richard Kelly has, and I always bring this up with Southland Tales, if you have to have a Bible and four comic books to explain the whole definition of what that film's about, you have failed. You have failed. And this is just one of many issues about the film, but it's his biggest one. I can get behind, like George said. I can understand how it's inversion and there's World War Three. If you're going to have beats, narrative beats, I get that. I can I can drive towards it. But even then, there there are so many issues in this film. I'm just left thinking, what? I, I I don't I don't. If the main goal is to go watch it again, I need something very elevated. I need something very very intoxicating, like a Lynch film. Where it's multifaceted to a degree where I can come and I can watch it in 15, 25, 50 years and I'll find something fresh and new, unique. I fail to see in my next viewing, which could be tomorrow, what Tanette will actually prove to me, aside from being able to understand what happens in that third act, because there's some just trollop worth of dialogue thrown in to sort of justify that there's an arc here. And it, again, not, not to not to sort of repeat myself constantly, but it's just this common theme where in a Nolan film, and I know Rory will defend this to, to, to the death, but Interstellar for me was his biggest problem until this. That film, by definition, my biggest problem with that film, is, and it's relevant to the overall argument of Tenor, is that you have a film that is built and justified on this high-level high science, this algorithm science that the film sort of conveys, and the twist... Is so narrow-minded and one-note and ridiculous. Those two things do not go together. And I find that this is a film that follows the same tactic. You have a, you have a plot that is so thinly layered and you have this scientific jargon behind it. And I, I, the, the film just cannot decide which, which it wants to be. Does it want to be this heightened, elevated material? that's just so scientifically accurate that you'll be in awe of wanting to sort of to to, to listen to a, a lecture on you know parallel physics or where, whatever the fuck the film's about or then at the, at the sort of the surface level it's just about stopping world war 3 now you can intertwine them don't get me wrong i've seen i think we've seen loads of films i think jj abrams does that relatively well you know that red foot uh, so the rabbit foot debacle in mission impossible 3 i think that's a way you can probably get away with it but it's just an excuse not to put depth down. If, if I spewed a lot of bullshit, nine, nine, nine times out of ten, someone's going to listen to it and think, well, Jesus Christ, I don't want to say anything there because I don't understand it. I'd rather just be quiet. And it's just the same thing here. And it's just, it's just a recurring theme throughout this work. But again, there's this comment about Nolan not being able to shoot action. For me, this is a film where the action gets progressively worse. The airplane scene that's in the actual trailer to me felt like it would be a third act momentum. And in the film itself, it does actually feel that it's, it's, it's not to spoil it, but it's, it's not just a one and done set piece either. It has a lot of weight to it. And the film, I don't know, I'm not gonna spoil it because I think that, that would generally spoil it. But again, it's a lot of weight to it. It's a very relevant piece throughout the, 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 the context of the film. And then we have the car chase that's, a, that, that's showcased in the uh, trailers, which I think in all honesty, is one of the worst car chasers shot. Yeah, we can have like a, like a, a reversing car, and then we can have a little bit of twist thrown into it, but it's one of the worst shot things I've, I've actually seen, I've had the pleasure to see. And then you get the third act, which hasn't been shown whatsoever in, in, in trailers, which I quite appreciate from Nolan. And I think he's, he's, he's done that um, probably since The Dark Knight and Rises like these sort of deleted, extended scenes. That final act from start to finish is the worst final act of an action set piece I have ever seen. Not only is it visually difficult to understand, but it's the, the momentum and the trajectory from start to finish is so jarring, uneventful, and quite frankly boring that we get to a, like, this, this final scene. And I'm, I'm generally just thinking, right, have we got 15 more minutes? And then Nolan has the bottle then to end the film on one of, I'm not, I don't want to spoil it again, but it has the bottle to end the film on another character, alluding something else to a. a, a and we watch a a, a few of the characters going to the sunset. It's just so patronizing beyond belief. And the more I think about this, I rate this film four stars, and I don't like doing four stars on this podcast. I don't like doing stars throughout the uh, the whole website, but. For me personally, the more I think about this, and I'm not trying to compare the two, and I'm going to stop in a minute just because I know it's going to sound hyperbolic, I'm having the same experience I had with Justice League where I saw it, I accepted for what it was, and the more time I leave the auditorium and I think about it, the more pissed off I get. And th- this film, by the end of this podcast, is going to rapidly decline in rating for me. I can see it already. Because the more I think about it, the more I'm just genuinely
2: pissed off beyond belief. I said at the start though, not stand up to a, uh, to scrutiny. So um, yeah, I think I think it's like the. Pro- I think while it's, while you're watching it, so while I was watching it, I thought the first two thirds, well, absolutely flew by. But it, there wasn't like much rhyme or reason to it. But it was like I think it was so briskly paced that it was entertaining while I was watching. it. And I do agree that the third act, especially the final battle, is visually underwhelming. It's confusing. You can't hear like a word of dialogue, and so you're trying to work out what they're actually doing, and you can kind of get a little bit of it. Like there is some color coding, but it's like pretty basic. But for while it was on, I was entertained by it. But I think the moment, like, as more time has passed, on Thursday, the more time that's passed, the more people have spoken to about it. It does lose that, that like, the, and I don't even think it's because it's like the first big film that's come out since um since cinemas are reopened, because I've been to see other films at the cinema before Tenet. I've seen like four films before going into Tenet. So for me, I don't actually have that thing of going, oh, this is this is the first film back after six months or whatever. So for me, it's not even that. So when I was there, I was entertained, but since I've come out of it and speaking now, it, it just doesn't really hold up. I don't know if it's because we expect more of Nolan, or it is actually like kind of, it is a mess. Essentially, it is a a mess and it feels hard to say because I think we all, for better or worse, I think Nolan has always been quite clinical. Some would say cold. I disagree with that, but some would say cold, but I think he's always been clinical. I don't think he's ever been messy. He's kind of quite close to a perfectionist, but I do think this is, is messy in its editing, in its writing just, like, kind of, it's world-building. I think it is inherently messy. And I think while you're in the moment, it works because you do kind of just go along with it. But then when you try thinking about it, it just, like, you you can pick holes in it, like, all the time. And I think... I don't know if it's intent... We'll get into if it's intentional or not. Because there's a line of dialogue, like, quite early on in the film, where she says, don't think about it too much, just feel it. And I'm like, is is Nolan saying that just just run with this but then i think it's somewhat lazy to do it kind of whether or not he's done this or not but this is being viewed as like the savior for the film industry and cinema To then just ask audiences to just go oh well fuck it just watch it like don't don't engage with it like intellectually whatsoever i think is like maybe a little a little arrogant and i think because now we are trying to engage with it intellectually. You're seeing the holes that are coming through, so maybe he knows as well that this doesn't hold up to any kind of intellectual rigour.
1: My thought's are probably quite disjointed, because a lot's been said since I last spoke, but coming off that, because I keep seeing that come up in reviews, that don't think about it, just feel it, which that stands up if the film wasn't so incessant on trying to explain every single one of its aspects to you. If you're asking the audience to just go along with it and just feel it, what the film's about and not overthink the scientific aspects, then why, as a filmmaker, are you choosing to have characters just stare at each other and go, this means this, this means that? Just absolute jargon like you were saying, which, as much as I like Interstellar, it's the same thing. It doesn't let Interstellar flow into this film that's just, you know, like like 2001, which is clearly what that film's a huge inspiration of. It doesn't end and go, oh, could okay, you let, let the audience think what they've it? just seen, it ends with, spoilers for Interstellar. Hence with Matthew McConaughey floating around the sixth dimension explaining every single thing that's happening to the audience. And as much as I like that film, it just doesn't work here for me. And I'll try not to go on about Richard Kelly for half an hour because I know a lot about him. But it's such an interesting comparison with Richard Kelly as a filmmaker. Like you said, with Southland Tales, he made this prequel saga. And even though if you find in interviews, he says, oh, you don't need to read the prequel saga to understand Southland Tales, which is a complete lie. And I can't believe he said that. It's just nonsense. You have to understand it. And so Doi Dark was one of my favourite films of all time. And the original cut of that film is clearly very Lynchian. That's what he was inspired by. Same reason I like Twin Peaks is it presents this narrative that doesn't really make sense. Narrative. Like it doesn't have a cohesive narrative, but it's the feeling you get from it. You have this feeling of there's something else there that I can work out which then Richard Kelly went himself and tried to ruin by making this director's cut which has explanation after explanation of this is what happens this is what I think the film's about which is pretty much has been disregarded by the whole of his like anyone who likes Donnie Darko is the worst cut and he almost ruined the film and I don't think Christopher Nolan's doing it to the extent that Richard Kelly tried to do with Southland Tales but it's so hard to talk about because like I am said there's just no he can't decide if he wants it to be explained. He could have just had this inversion idea, which is introduced at the start, as you know, the the um, the scientist introduces the concept, that sets up the rest of the film that this is the you know this is the doohickey that Christopher Nolan's like. Oh, I want to make a film about stuff going backwards. That'll be cool to shoot. But he can't decide if he wants the audience to understand it by constant explanation, or he wants to just let it happen and then expect the audience to go along with it and the fact that he couldn't make a decision on that just makes the film so much worse for it and then that leaves you being completely disconnected i, I just i think like as jack was saying it didn't either didn't need to be explained 95 times or it did need to be explained once cohesively which it never is um going back to the action scenes which we brought back a long time ago but um we spoke about a while ago but uh, without going into the spoilers, it's that, as Jack was saying, that final act, action scene, although I think it is visually impressive, I think it, I, to, to me, it was shot really well and I was kind of in awe at how he was doing it and it's very show-offy, like, you know, it's everything that's happening in the film kind of coming together but it, it just makes no sense. I couldn't even, it's one of the few times in a film I couldn't even begin to make heads or tails of who was on whose side, why we were doing this, I, I get that, okay, it's World War Three, it's going to happen, we need to stop it But I don't want to get into specifics, but basically, you know, I didn't understand who was fighting, which in a fight scene is the number one problem you can make. You don't know what anyone's fighting for other than we don't want the world to end. And although I liked Kenneth Branagh's performance as the villain, I I thought it was so silly, which he's clearly, he's just chewing the scenery around him. He's just going for it, which it works to an extent but there were scenes towards the final acts that I generally almost burst out laughing at what was going on and the way they're handled, which I, I hope people know the ones I'm on about. I, but, and, and they almost, they hint at it, they just, I think, as you said, it's in like the final 10 minutes of, this is why he was doing it. Here Here's his reason. But why is that reason not introduced an hour and a half ago into the film when he's introduced, or it doesn't have to be right away, but, you spend the whole film on like, why is he doing this? Why, first of all, why does John David Washington's character, as you say, why does he care? Why is he doing this? But you don't just have that. Why does the villain care? You don't understand why anyone is doing what they're doing. And there's a, they do introduce this really interesting idea to me of why, without getting spoiled, why this is happening. And you're like, okay, that is pretty cool, and it's just abandoned in favor of, oh, here's here's a little line at the end, so you can leave the cinema thinking that something clever has happened that doesn't make any sense whatsoever which I usually enjoy but in this it just it was a nail in the coffin as I'd completely given up in this film but I, I think the last thing I'll say is the film it feels like two films battling to be one it's like the spy film and then it goes into this not generic, but what had became the traditional Nolan kind of like a better word inversion on narrative and even although I didn't understand it, the. This, the spy film aspect was the bit I actually really struggled to understand just the kind of simple first and middle act of why each scene was happening like the 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 airplane scene which we keep coming back to I must have missed something I genuinely didn't understand why they were doing it I, I kind of got it eventually but it was just things like that but I didn't it wasn't made clear to me enough why they were doing what they were doing so when those scenes were happening I was just like okay I'm, I don't have a clue what's going on I'm just appreciating what is happening and that's probably a fault on my part I maybe would need to see it again but I usually don't miss out on those aspects so I don't know if that is a fail on the film's part or a fail on my part.
2: Perfect time to go into the sound mixing (laughs) I'd say so people are saying it's because the music's too loud for me it wasn't that the music was too loud it's because they're actually so the first scene in the opera house so you have they're all wearing gas masks and it is literally impossible to hear, so I was speaking with um with Jacob, who's obviously on this podcast KG. I was speaking with him I like, messaging him uh asking him about stuff because I couldn't pick it up from what they were saying so that there's one thing in particular and again, I'm not going to go into spoilers. there's one thing and I was thinking what why has that happened because like, it's it's not conveyed well in the film, and he says it was mentioned later on, but because the sound mixing is so inconsistent it's it's genuinely really hard to pick up on like small details, which is why you feel kind of stupid come the end of it there's another scene as well with all the I think it's John David Washington Bickey and um Kenneth Branner and they're they're having like this conversation in the middle of a like a yacht race. I can understand the word of it, and then something happens and it's meant to have like this kind of big emotional thing and I'm like well, what has it been building up to that? Or has it literally just happened? Because I couldn't understand the word of it. So, as we were saying, we don't know why. It's It's been a problem since, I think it started in Inception. It really reared its head in Dark Knight Rises. I think Interstellar, I don't remember it too much from Interstellar. Correct me if I'm wrong. I don't remember the, there being too many issues in that. But in this, it's like, how come we're in 2020 and we can't get, like, a proper like sound mix, and the worst thing is, this will probably be nominated for best sound mix in it, the Oscars because it's loud. Because that's all they do. If it's loud, then it must be mixed well the sound, and it's not mixed well at all. And especially when you have like a a concept like this, where you need them to explain it to help you understand it. Why they're explaining it in the middle of a battle is like genuinely fries my brain more than the actual concept itself like I cannot compute why he would do this if he's deliberately misleading the audience why I don't think anyone's come out of this thinking like oh yeah I absolutely know that concept like 100% I completely understand it it doesn't work for the betterment of the film you just come out of it annoyed that a film that's cost what like 200 million reportedly has like some amateurish sound mixing like i don't know with you if it was if you had problems with the music for me it was genuinely just i had problems understanding their speech it wasn't deafened by anything it was like muffled by their own kind of apparatus around their face
3: i think i i'll I'll go on from your point in a second george but i think i need to just establish the fact that uh whilst there are a lot of issues with this film i didn't i did enjoy it i do still think it's a solid movie Um, But I'd just like to kind of address what you guys have been talking about. Uh, Regarding the exposition aspect of this movie, I feel like the most obvious spout of that is probably Rob Pattinson. I think his character largely exists to spout off exposition. There's a scene in a storage container where he literally just sits down and explains. And there was a moment when I was was watching this with my friend, there was a moment where Rob Pattinson sits down next to Elizabeth Debicki and says, right, let me just tell you what's going on. And then it cuts. And my friend audibly was like, why, why? Why have you done this? But yeah, I mean, Rob Panson, he is an exposition machine in this film, but I do think, and I can understand why you guys think Elizabeth Debicki is the heart of this, but I think Rob Panson, his relationship with John David Washington is the heart of this film. And this like last minute stinger that you guys have been talking about, I was actually quite a big fan of, if we're talking about the same one that is, uh, that relates to Robert Panson, But I think, yeah, he was definitely the the most interesting and most emotionally resonant character in this film for me. I do still really like the fact that we're living in an age obviously less so now more than ever, but we're still living in a time where an auto-director can go up to the studio and say, I want you to give me $200 million to make a film that is essentially completely my own brainchild and they'll do it. I think there's something to be admired in that, even if it is slightly undercooked or not slightly very undercooked. I think the gratification, as you guys were saying earlier, from Nolan Films comes a lot from explaining these complex concepts to the audience, you know, as they do with the dream layering and limbo and interception and with the, uh, I'm going to, this is my first kind of accreditation to Interstellar and how they explain black holes in Interstellar I think is really well done, where, you know, they get the piece of paper and fold it and punch a pencil through it. I think that's really, he does a really good job in those films of simplifying these complex concepts, but over a period of time so like the, the enjoyment of the film is gradually beginning to understand what's going on. And I think the difference between this and his other films is that he doesn't really take it far enough here or far at all. I think he introduces a com- complex concept and instead of helping the audience to understand it, just has it kind of gestate and exist there and hope that they'll either grasp it or not. I mean, I'm at a point where I don't really know if he fully wants us to understand what he's saying, but I think that is a real issue. It makes me think that, that that he he's spoken before about how Inception, he kind of sat on Inception for 10 years before he decided to eventually go and make it. I think that's something that he should have done here as well. I think this just hasn't been sat on for long enough. I think the script could have been developed even further, gone through a few more drafts just to make it more accessible and understandable to an audience i'm not saying it has to be dumbed down i'm just saying it has to be elaborated on more and he needs to just make it more kind of overt and more understandable uh there are action sequences that work very well as as we've said before jack i i do kind of back the uh the car chase sequence i think it's still energetic and interesting but um I can understand where you're coming from in a sense. I mean, it's no Matrix Reloaded, there. Eh? But yeah, I think after this, Nolan maybe needs to make something a bit more, not necessarily stripped down, but a bit more akin to the likes of Inception and Interstellar. It's fine him having these out there high concept films, but he needs to help us understand these concepts better. I feel like with Tenet, he just wrote this story and thought he'd made something really intellectual and special. And got really excited and just put it into production straight away. But I think he needed to sit on this for a little bit longer in order to help us connect with it better.
2: Just going to say that apparently he was writing this for five years. I think yeah, you said Inception was about ten years. And Inception was like originally a horror film, but uh, apparently with Tenet he was writing it for five years. So um, make of that what you will.
0: There's a, there's a lot to go back from. There's a lot being said. Um, so I'm, I'm going to try and not repeat anything that anyone else has. The, the, I do want to just mention the sound design because um, I know it's been sort of filtered around, but um, I think it's terrible. It, it's not the sound design per se that's an issue. It's the volume level that's way too high and it's excessively to the point where it obstructs narrative, it, it obstructs plot, it obstructs character. We had There was an issue with Bane during the Dark Rises where the prologue came out. People complained they edited the voice, which I don't think they really should have done. I think you could you can make it sound gritty and and uneasy on the on the on the ears, but I think it's just the levels that that they execute he had more issues with interstellar with the levels and he's had issues on Dunkirk and he's had issues with this now I don't know if that is a is a if if that's him subconsciously on or consciously dictating that cinemas are not showing his films at the correct rate. Blah blah blah, which I think I'm going to get onto a little bit later. I think we we, we all will because I think not to allude to it, but Rory, I think you said that, that this is one of the few big IPs where you have original uh, properties directed by a director who, who has kind of Cate on on everything. Not to, I'm just going to allude to it now, and I'll move on very quickly. I think this is the, the end of that conversation with this film, and I think we'll, we'll talk about it a bit later. But it's interesting that you bring up The Matrix Reloaded because I'm glad that someone with some uh, brings the Wachowskis into this because I think that's how you do. It. I think that is how you do a, a, a car chase. Is that you? I don't. I don't think in a film like this, if it's science fiction as well, I think you you within the genre you can push the boundaries beyond belief. And there's no excuse to make a car chase mundane. And I think if you compared this to the Wachowskis uh, car chase, the the two very different beasts. I completely would. I would accept that. But the thing with the Wachowskis' one is that it's so excessively overindulgent and bizarre. But it's 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 fucking loud. It's fast paced. All the filmmaking ability is is there to construct an incredibly entertaining set piece, regardless if it's over excessive. This, even though it's interestingly done with, with how the inversions implemented, I still think visually it, it's dull and mundane. I think there's there's such a sort of over indulgence in, 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 in a yellow color palette on the film, where it makes everything look incredibly horrible to watch. There's a lot of blues throughout, but there's a lot of, um, of yellows as well. And it's interesting that again with the Wachowski thing is that how they sort of dictate what the real world is against the Matrix. You have your yellows, and you have your, so you have your blues, and then you have your greens. Whereas here, Nolan does do something very interesting with the inversion. But it's 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 just a very strange one and done thing that's never sort of alluded to again. But again, it's just an issue I have with the color palette. But there are two things that that generally made me laugh more than anything else in this film. I just want to touch upon before I move on, is that there is a hostage scene in here, and it's not really it's not really crafted like a hostage scene. It's um, but it's sort of a two characters between a glass pane, right? And there's a hostage scene, and. I don't want to give too much away, but it's 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 sort of there's an inversion happening at the same time. And one character speaks almost like it's a Twin Peaks episode, it's almost like backwards. And I was just sat there thinking, seriously, seriously, what the actual fuck is going on? I can't hear a thing, I can't understand a thing. I just the whole scene there was so ridiculous. And then how the characters contextually sort of sort of that out was even more so bizarre. And again, like it's not to make me feel stupid. I understand what they were doing, but it's sort of, it just felt like Nolan was just writing out of his ass at this point. It was like, I need I need to get around it. Or oh, they can just do that. Oh, I need to, well we'll just do that. And the second thing that was generally hilarious is in the third act. And I'm mean, very, very tight-lipped here. But there is a war zone like battle that's going on and one character is trying to get the attention of the two. By doing a fucking car horn, and I'm just thinking, there was there was an explosion that went off. A building was separated um, from, from from existence, and then you've got someone in a fucking car horn going beep beep, and it's like, did you ever expect to get their attention? What half-assed idea that is! And then what makes that thing even worse is there is the reveal at the end implies. Something that you know, again, time is always relative in Nolan's sort of uh, mindset. So you know what you're seeing perhaps isn't the first time that it's happened. That's not a spoiler. I think throughout with Inception, especially with his prologue, you know, he likes to sort of move narrative. But I was just left like, if that to me is the one of the most patronising elements is that if if you if you if you put me with science, I can. I know I've sort of complained about it and I've bitched about it a lot, but to a certain degree, I can, so I can accept it. I don't know the ins and outs of how, how, how Skynet sends a Terminator back, but I accept it. I don't know how people can get plugged into the matrix. I accept it. Here, I'm having a very big trouble of accepting the inversion because I think how it's conveyed is so light and uninspiring. I think the bottom line is that I just don't care. And um, it, it, like I said, I feel like I'm shit on the same things. But like you said, Rory, there are things I do like. I do like the score. I even like the Travis Scott thing, which I, very, I think is very interesting by Nolan. I think that is most undoubtedly an afterthought um, with the Fortnite issue. I think that comes out that they, they needed a second um, bit of hype. So with the Fortnite thing, when Travis Scott playing his, his his you know online concert there, and then there was this rumor of. Nolan having a working relationship with Fortnite. That's most definitely a, a, a publicist thing. But also as well, I feel like I've just slightly got my thought, but I'll go back to it. For once, and I think I, I don't want to speak off kilter here, so I need to be very careful how I say this, but I think this is the first film where there's actually a conscious decision on showing a mixed ethnicity throughout the film. The film, for a good portion, is set in India, which I thought was quite refreshing. We don't get to sort of explore the city or the dynamics of it you know, the, the working relationship of its people. We have to go towards the rich, which Northern constantly likes to do, which again don't really give a shit about. And I think presenting a, a, a somewhat of a diverse set of characters, which I believe in this, this film is three. You have Hamish Patel who was in Daddy Boys yesterday. You have John David Washington who plays the protagonist, which again not to go on that annoys me. And then you have a, a, well I actually won't spoil that. We we have another character and I thought Hamish Patel with an American accent was slightly strange to listen to because it's uh, to get experience to me with the, the, uh, his British accent. But uh, Again, I think that's very interesting. But again, and not to repeat yourself, Nolan does this thing where in his third act, he will bring out a third party, and you're meant to go, wow, that is so amazing. Wow. But the, po- the point is, a good foreshadowing and a good twist is that you implement it beforehand. And there, there is one moment in the Opera House where the film lingers and I'm just like, right, OK, thanks for that. I'll just I'll just wait on that one. Again, the returns of that is abysmal. So I think with Nolan, I think Jakob said this more. I'm not going to drop him in this shit, but I will do because I think he's done it to me multiple times. But I will say that this is that Nolan elevates material that's for the mundane and tries to educate sort of the normal class of cinema goers who don't want to go to art house. So let's say, for example, if you're 15 and you don't know the likes of Lynch or something like that, which is no problem, you get introduced to cinema at a steady at your own pace. The library's there, go find it. But I think if you're not into the vast area of cinema and you see this, you think, oh my God, this is a second coming. Oh my God, this is, this is, this is amazing. I can't believe he's done this. Once you start looking at the zeitgeist and you look at Nolan's influences, he, he, he sort of slowly but surely began start to become slightly opaque in his in his sort of execution of cinema. It, throughout his filmography, you can point to one massive inspiration that defines his feature. With this, I haven't found it so much, and I think that's his ironically his biggest problem. He has nothing to go off from this, so this is probably is that for Inception, even then that, that it's based on the artwork of um, I forget the artwork name, but. I think everybody who's fond of Inception will know that. But here, because there's no base for him to sort of dictate where his story's going to go off a previous property, he gets lost. And I think the balance of him finding is that he finds inspiration and he makes his own from it. The Dark Knight is his best bet because he takes Batman, puts him in heat. The Dark Knight Rises, he takes a tale of two cities and puts Batman in it. Okay, it doesn't really work and you have issues with your third act. But everything else, when he makes original IP, And he doesn't fuck around with time and narrative to a point of oblivion. I think he succeeds on, which I think is Inception. I think that is his magnum opus. Interstellar is the same issue, but he goes too heavy on his inspirations and influences. Here, because he's restrained from it, he falls on his own merit. And it just isn't there. There's just nothing here that's inspiring whatsoever, which is strange considering when you look at Insomnia, which is based on a remix, that doesn't count. Then you look at Memento and all that really is, is just pulling away from a very one-note story, which is very interesting, not me wrong, but it's just a critique of narrative and twisting plot. He's not the greatest writer going, and I think this is his clearest of his day where his issues are. Just but just to move on from that and not to sort of go more and more, but just to talk about Nolan elevating the mundane and sort of the the, the casual moviegoer seeing this and think it is the the Christ redeemer in question. I think he's got away with that far too much now. And it's the point is that because cinema's opening up now, um he, he, he is going to be this saviour again, and not no pun intended, but he wants to be the saviour to to get everyone back in the seat, get everyone back in the cinema that there is going to be another generation that goes back here and witnesses this for the first time and becomes in awe with him, but doesn't see that he is just simply doing something that has been done to death. He's not heightening it, he's not elevating it. He's just giving it a new lick of pain and everyone sees it, this hugely magnitude evolution in film for, for filmmaking. I'm just not here for it. I'm just not here for that shit anymore whatsoever. I like Nolan as a director. I like the idea of Nolan. But not to sort of step on my own parade, but what we see here now with, with Tenet, that this is it, that this is this is seriously it. We'll never see this the likes of this again. Partly that's due to lockdown, partly that's due to the coronavirus. But I also think it's partly due to Nolan's self-indulgence not to accept that People are not here for the shit that think that they want to be educated or to, to be in order of science. They want to be entertained. And if he's not able to sort of rectify that now with the chance he's got with Tenet, which obviously he hasn't, I find it tough to see where he'll go from here. And I always fucking do this. I always say, well, why are they going to go after this? Why are they going to go after that? With this, Nolan will not be able to make this film again. He won't be able to do it. So, where does he go? He will have to go back to the franchise game. That's the only out he's got, which which unfortunately for him or for other audiences will probably be Bond. He just screams it. After this, it just screams that with with, with No Time to Die, Formula, and the end of Daniel Craig's career as Bond, Nolan comes in. He has probably what a trilogy of films he can get away with with the Broccoli family. That is his out because he's never going to be able to make this again. And to be honest, Knowing that, and probably, maybe the writing's been on the wall for a long time, but the fact is that we've waited so long, five years for himself to write this, and it comes out. And to me, the narrative is so half-arsed. I'm just so more disappointed in the fact that this is the last thing we'll probably see on this level. Maybe he'll make another Dunkirk again for 50 million. But even then, I still think that... William Freakin said it best: "Is that when, when, and this a sort of really funny conversation? Did with Nicholas Raymon Worthen is that these films after 2010 are, are a pimple on, on the ass of mankind at this point? It took 40 years to realize what Citizen Kane was. It took 30 years to realize what 2001 was to the Zeitgeist. Nobody knows what Inception means at this point. Nobody knows at this point what Interstellar means." The anomaly there would be The Dark Knight. It's quite clear how that's defined cinema. But that that genre is coming to an end, if we like it or not. It's dwindling. There's no doubt that this, the superhero fatigue has set in. I I, I I'm, not, I'm, I'm Again, I'm not sitting here and saying it's, it's all shit. It's not. There is some incredibly good work with the superhero genre. Netflix are doing it. Amazon are doing it. Apple TV, Apple TV are doing it. The blockbusters are doing it. The independents are doing it. It's done. You can't elevate that material anymore. He was the first one to do it to the degree that he did. Again, influenced by Sam Raimi, that needs to be spoken about as well. But even again, that's a very small width of ten. Well, ten years, let's say, uh, to, oh, oh, 08 to eighteen. I think that the Dark Knight's influence is done. Ten years for a film to have influence—is that really an influence? Is that a pimple on the ass? I think it is, and I'm not. I'm, again, I'm not. <laughs> I'm not discrediting the work there because I think it's a momentous. We will not talk about, about Tenet the same way we'll talk about The Dark Knight. We won't talk about Interstellar the same way we do about that film. But even then, we won't talk about The Dark Knight for years to come. We just won't. We will talk about probably about Ledger. But again, I feel like with what happened with Joaquin Phoenix, even that's gone. I just think that, just to end and I'll move on again because I know I've spoke for fucking ages now and I'm, you know, but I don't want to sort of get i bogged down in it but nolan now is at the biggest crossroads that nobody wants to talk about and nobody wants to sort of acknowledge he can't live off the, the coattails of making these films with this oh well he is the original ip you know villain doing it fucking lynch is doing it he just doesn't get the money for it you know christ but across a caruth was doing it you know, there are people out there who are making independent films, th- thought-provoking pieces of, of art. You know, it's just because Nolan gets $200 million does not... It's like a segregation thing where we, we have to separate the, 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 the you know, it's sort of almost like a class system. And maybe segregation's a wrong word, but, but again, it's like we have to classify between independent and blockbuster. I can't say to anyone in, this, in this, this call now that Nolan did anything unique that Claire Denis did in High Life. And granted, the comparisons there are quite um, on the nose, especially with Patterson, with Tanette, but with how Denis looks at sort of the sadistic, cynical side of, and, of science and looks at the fact that against that ending is that they are traveling into the unknown on more ways than one. And with Interstellar, you're telling me that throughout that condemnation of society, of, of Earth, that there's a fucking twist of Matt Damon being in a bunker in the middle of Fuck Knows um, hoff or whatever it is. And then you've got this, the, the, you know, the, 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 the moment at the end where Jessica Chastain, all grown up as Ellen Burstein, is, is, is spitting with Matthew McConaughey. Please. Like, I understand that when someone wants to sort of direct the American dream and write this American dream, I appreciate that, but the fact is that science fiction—you've got so much to sort of look at the the degradation of Earth—and I think that that's what Duncan Jones does very well. Granted, *Mute* and a *Moon* and *Source Code*—they're not the the, the 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 talent of Nolan. I'm not saying that, but with science fiction, you can showcase like *Silent Running*. You can showcase the the, the evilness of of the future of corporations blader no and Blade a 2049 the list can go on but nolan's fascination with genre doesn't elevate or, or or transcend the material whatsoever he just wants to have all flash and unfortunately and i'm going to end this here and um, my conversation sorry not the, <laughs> not the podcast because i'm sure this monster, is that if there's ever a defining nature of style over substance of nolan and the critique for it I I I I I would I would be very I would find it very difficult to hear a hard and be hard pressed to find a defence against that with this, because this is style over substance at every degree of the word, and, and the phrase sorry, I don't I don't want to say this to, to you know to be to be so blunt, but it's been it's been a very slow path for Nolan to realise that, you know there's a reason why you know, we, no one goes horse and cart to school anymore or goes to work. People drive cars, they get the train. The world evolves, the world changes. If you don't get with the times, you'll get lost. The, 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 the issue of shooting purely on film and IMAX, that's one thing I can get behind. But the fact is that this film is not going to make its budget. It Clearly, has, it's not going to make anything domestically because the time it comes out, it's going to, it's going to pirate beyond belief. Whatever Warner Brothers is thinking. IP Cinema against Dune, as well, that comes out in December. That's going to change again because it's not going to make any money. We're never going to see that sequel. He needs to get on, he needs to evolve now or, be, or get left behind. And I think he needs to seriously look at Apple TV to have a career now. Because for me, I think with tonight, I think I'm slightly done with the fact that Nolan is this author. I think it's bullshit.
2: I wanted to um, <clears throat> expand on some of that. I think you mentioning, it. it's kind of like Dark Knight, does it have. After ten years, I think we also have to acknowledge that like ninety nine point nine percent of films wouldn't even be considered to have like any lasting impact beyond like the week they come out. And I think with Nolan, it's it's not it's not so much the films as like textual things that have the impact. It's more the position he's managed to uh, get himself into in Hollywood. I think maybe maybe more so like ten years ago, but I think he managed to engineer himself from kind of doing these starting off with these like little but maybe like puzzle box films and then managing to kind of get in the bigger budgets with Batman Begins. I know some people say like Batman Begins is is an art house film and a blockbuster which it isn't, but it was more it was more grounded and you have to remember that it's like fifteen years ago. That's quite a long time in in cinema and and then what he managed to do was he, even though I'm not going to say that they lot like the most scientifically rigorous films or the most thematically demanding, but what he managed to do was bring these concepts and then merge them with like Hollywood traditions. So in the case of Inception, you have the high concept of dreamscape mixed with just a hoist film. At its core, it's a hoist film. And the the problem is, is differentiating that with the kind of fandom and I try and ignore the fandom but I don't really look at film Twitter so I don't know specifically what they're saying but I think I think most people the vast majority of people see Nolan as that I don't think they see him as someone who's kind of commenting on our position with society or commenting on these themes so I think he's bringing them into the mainstream where directors didn't they are starting to but I think we have to acknowledge that Nolan was kind of in this century alone Kind of one of the the forebears of that I don't know if Villeneuve's coming up now and I'd argue that Villeneuve is colder than nolan that's just my personal opinion. I think Villeneuve's like kind of more overrated than nolan, but that's that's for another uh, that's another debate completely but I think I do agree that Nolan is never going to be able to get two hundred million dollars to make a like a a tenant again, but then I'd also argue i don't think any director is going to be able to make that and I still think Nolan, he, we have to remember that is still getting good reviews but I, I still liked it, I'm more lukewarm on it but it's still, for Nolan it's kind of lukewarm but I think it shows his consistency and the appeal that he has, that something that's getting lukewarm reviews will be considered like a failure for him really and Interstellar got lukewarm reviews when it came out and I think that's actually kind of improved in, in its legacy but I, I think we everyone by the lockdown by obviously the, the pandemic I think filmmaking is gonna change and I don't think we're gonna see anyone given two hundred million to even make a superhero film like a kind of rock solid sequel superhero film like the safest bet. I don't think anyone's gonna get that and I still think Nolan will be I still think he's will be the biggest name in in filmmaking. I still think he's a bigger name than than Villeneuve to the to the masses. I still think he'll I still think he has that a lot. I don't think he's going to have to go to streaming. I don't think he'd want to. I would maybe like to see him kind of step away from like these high-concept uh, blockbusters for a while. I've always been of the opinion that I'd love to see him do a Western, but I think that with his cinematography, the music, just like, kind of something in the vein of like, uh, the Coen's true grit, something like that, I would love to see him do a Western. I don't want to see him do Bond, to be honest, I can see the appeal, but I really don't want to see him do Bond. I don't want to see him shackled. I like franchises because if he's just having to do like these bog standard action sequences, he could do them well. But I want to, if I'm gonna, if I want to see him do big films, big blockbusters, I want to see him do these concept ones. Which is why I'm not gonna like completely disregard Tenet. I do want to see him do these. I don't want to see him do like a straight up action film. But I think for his next film. Maybe tries on the drama or something, or like something else. But I, I definitely don't want to see him do like Bond. I think that would be a waste of his talent. Completely. George, can I,
0: can I just? Say, I think that deal's already been done. I do. I not not to not to. I'm not going to rant or anything like that. i to let you finish your point, alright. But in my heart, I think that deal's been done for a long time. I think, I think, no time to die. I think he may have been close to doing that, but I think the decision to get uh, Kari Fukunaga on it and end the era and then him to sort of begin a new one is a better better idea for him to sort of have an overall arc. I just think that deal's already been done. I don't know why. I've got no evidence to support that. But I've got a strange feeling to think that has been sort of, that will be announced sooner rather than later. Whoever
2: plays Bond will be the biggest thing, but I've got a horrible feeling that, that that might be true. Don't get me wrong. If it come out and it was that Nolan was doing Bond, I wouldn't be like absolutely gutted. But it's one of those. I think. I think his strength as a filmmaker is these ideas. Even though he doesn't always nail them, and in the case of Ten, he definitely doesn't nail it. We still have to acknowledge that. Is there really any other director that is kind of bringing these? Not like big kind of thematic ideas, but big concepts, shall we say? Is there anyone still willing to kind of bring these kind of puzzle box things in a main, sh- in like a big budget thing? Like, I don't think Villeneuve is. If you look at Villeneuve's uh thing, like Blade Runner, that's a sequel, like it's still a sequel to a long standing thing, and it hasn't, it's not a big ideas or a big concept film, it's a different film, but it's not like a big concept. I still think Nolan. Comes up with these concepts, like the concept in, in in Inception. I still think I can't really think of anyone who is a uh, really doing that, to be honest. And I st- still think that's his place. I don't really want to see him shackled by Bond. So I'll let I'll let someone else jump in about it, where they want to see Nolan go or where they think he'll go.
3: Uh, I don't want to I don't want to make this a Villeneuve versus Nolan argument, but I'd say that I'd say that. Villeneuve had his kind of inception moment, maybe with Arrival, which I think explains, it's like a sci-fi movie that explains really com- complex ideas and the gratification comes from working that out and you know work out the kind of machinations of that alien language in that film. And how it plays with time as well is really interesting. So I think that's actually a bigger connection between them and I thought I might be spouting bollocks. You guys let me know. I, I agree, I wouldn't be gutted if Nolan did a Bond film. I think Tenet is essentially like a far-fetched James Bond film in a way. It's just this kind of international espionage film with a prestige cast and huge set pieces. And yeah, I mean, I think John David Washington, you know, he's a very Bond-like figure in this. I mean, this this feels like one of the more high-concept Bond films that you get. This is like kind of, I don't know. Like when they used to make Moonraker, if Tenor, if Tenet came out in, you know, the 60s and 70s, this is like a Moonraker era Bond film, but they're just a bit far-fetched. Uh, obviously a bit more intellectual than those kind of Roger Moore, Sean Connery movies, but it does feel like this is a Moonra- Moonraker era Bond film in the making. I think he'd do well with the Bond film, but then again, it's, it's, it's a studio film and a studio property that's not going to let him push the boundaries like he likes to in his original films. So I think it would be a strong Bond film, but I think it'd be a waste to, you know, devote four or five years of Nolan's working life to a franchise film. But talking about where he's going to go next, I think, yeah, I think a Western from Nolan would be really cool. I like the idea of that. I like the idea of him carrying on the sci-fi vein as well. I think if he gets back into existing IPs, it's a, it's, a difficult, it's a difficult idea because I wouldn't want him to make a kind of trilogy again. I don't want him to do another kind of Batman trilogy. I'm not saying it'd be a superhero film, but I don't want him to take an existing property and devote kind of 10 years of his life to that. I'm very conscious of the fact that, you know, filmmakers have kind of a working lifespan. And I think Nolan is such an interesting creative that he needs to really carry on doing his own stuff. It's just, and I agree with Jack, I don't think he's ever going to get a chance to make something like this again on this scale. And I think that's a shame, but I think that's not just a symptom of how this film performs, it's a symptom of the world we live in now, that these things just don't happen anymore. But I think, yeah, him and Villeneuve, there are some interesting parallels there. But yeah, I, I don't really know what he could do next. That's not a very interesting answer to that question, is it? But yeah, I, it's, it's, he's a fascinating guy and I just don't, know how he's going to manage it. I think Bond is definitely on the cards and I wouldn't be adverse to that. But I do think it'd be a waste for him to get back into franchise filmmaking.
0: Just to touch on that, I think that's a really interesting idea. I think just to, just to quickly, uh, briefly touch upon what you said, George, about who makes art like that. I think Matt Reeves was one at one point. I think Abrahams was another. And I think Joseph Kaczynski was another. Where the, the, There was a trio of sort of, from the 2000s, uh, the mid-2000s, to sort of create this visual um, entertainment, uh, especially Kaczynski with Tron, and then you have uh, Reeves with the Donald Planet Apes and Abrams with, the, with with Star Wars. And all three of them have sort of just gone off the boil a little bit. I think Kaczynski making a believe he didn't do him any favors. He's going to do to- uh, Top Gun Maverick, and I'm just... I don't know, I I think I think that's probably the wrong decision I think Chris McQuarrie doesn't make um, enough high uh, or elevated material to be in that bracket, although I think he's a, a very good um, action-oriented director Abraham's after Rise of the Skywalker for me, he's done, I'm I'm not interested anymore uh, God, who was the third one? I've just forgotten. Oh, Matt Reeves, yeah with Batman, I think Matt Reeves is probably the saviour but speaking of uh, you know, weirdly Matt Reeves when we speak about Villeneuve and, and um, Nolan, you know being very similar. Um, I think Reeves is on Nolan's tail. And ironically enough, yes, he's doing a, he's doing a Batman feature. But I would love to see Nolan do, a, do a, an ape feature. I think that there's a visuals there to sort of get him stuck in, in the science, especially with the um, technology that, he, that he's game to, to look at. But I also think it would help Nolan um, not having to write a lot of material uh, for themes and characters because it's present there. So that could be an interesting one, but I think uh, Wes, uh, Wes Ball from The Maze Runners doing the uh, new trilogy of Planet of the Apes, which is frightening to, to discuss. But I think I'll talk about Villeneuve and then I'll end it. I'll go up to Cal, but I think that'll be me done for here because I think I'm just going to get angry. But yeah, big up uh, Joseph Kaczynski. I think Tron Legacy uh, is generally probably a defining film of the 2010s, undoubtedly, I felt for what it, uh, it did for IMAX and what it did for uh, um, score and achievement, but. Just to touch it on Villeneuve and and Nolan because there is this comparison that gets fired across both of them quite a lot. And it's interesting because if you look at their parallel careers, as much as they get the same shit thrown at them, and I think when you say, George, and let's have an argument here, um, when you say you find Villeneuve cold, I think that's fair enough, but I think it's contextually appropriate and conscious for Villeneuve to write cold characters where I think Nolan doesn't understand his characters and writes them cold regardless because he has nothing to add. I don't think Nolan could make a film with subtlety and nuance like Sicario.
2: Just couldn't do it. Well, I, I, I do like Sicario. Even well, that it's, called, it's, it's a contextual thing. Whereas a film like Enemy, I would just say it's cold and cold straight up and I didn't like it. And yeah, like Arrival is cold yeah. as well. So it depends yeah. on the film. But I like, think I'm not just shitting on him. I
0: think Enemy, I wouldn't be able to back against that because I think Enemy is a film that is meant to be so advertly cold and very almost Northern-like where you take what you need into that film and you get a out of it. I don't think Villeneuve presents anything of meaning in that film. It's all the audience. So It's an interesting sort of experimental film if you think it like that. I'm not trying to defend Villeneuve because I'm not a fanboy. I do like his work. I need to sort of just make that evident. But with Arrival... I think that and Blade Runner 2049... Are the, well, actually, not that. Let's let's leave Blade Runner out, because it's a, it's a franchise. Let's just forget about that. I think Arrival is the closest to Nolan that Villeneuve will ever get. I think that's the middle point. And I, I, I think you were right. I think that film is so cold. And I think the reason why is that it doesn't help with Jeremy Renner. And I, and I, I don't want to shit on Jeremy Renner, because everyone shits on him. And he's, By all accounts, fair enough. But I think because of his acting style and because he's so restrained and cold in his mannerisms, and then you've got Amy Adams, who's sort of projecting this multifaceted massive, dynamic story about grief that the audience are not quite wary of and, and, and the issue of time and it's how it's constructed in a narrative. He's just there as a placeholder. And I don't think he gives that character and I don't think he gives Amy Adams' character that emotional range to sort of uh, d- divulge in. But regardless of that, I think d- d- Doom will be the biggest one because I think, he's, I think a lot of people are going to put that back to the Nolan thing. But I think Villeneuve looks at the world with a very pessimistic and cynical eye. And I think it's hard to look at his old filmography and not see a, a glimmer of hope in, in relatively anything, which is actually quite frightening because Nolan... I would say is, is is the other side of that coin, where even in the, the, the pit of, of of a global catastrophe, like I don't know Gotham City, you know, going they're literally hanging people in the street and then they're, they're, they're putting through the Gotham Bay in the ice. That film still manages to find hope for a man who dresses up as a bat who's a billionaire. So I, I think it's interesting. Maybe it's relative to where you come from. Maybe that Nolan, where he's come from, living in fucking. You know, London and living in America, maybe he has a different worldview of of, of how Dennis Villeneuve is the world. I don't know, I can't question that. Maybe that's too pompous of me to say. But I think that Nolan cannot write a working class character, whereas I think Villeneuve knows very well how to write that. And that's the difference. I think Villeneuve doesn't pretend to write elevated material, he presents what he needs to present in a cynical manner, whereas Nolan will present probably material that's mundane and try and elevate it and just sprinkle some, you know, glitter on it and think, fucking hell, there you go, it's a Picasso. And I think he's got away with it for a long, long time. And longevity-wise, it's interesting that we talk about... Nolan is about 10 years ahead of Villeneuve career-wise. He's done the franchise game. He's done that. He's got over it, successful. There's no... You cannot argue against him. He's, 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 he's only the second person in history... To have, at that time, to have made a, a, a trilogy of comic book films. Again, bar from Sam Raimi, say what you will about that trilogy. So, but, but regardless, it's a big monumental feat. Villeneuve has got to the point where he's beginning that journey of the franchise game. He did it with Blade Runner, and I don't think he got the response that they were looking for with that, box office and critical wise. To go from that and then go again to a science fiction project that's got a history again in itself that's not... It's not great with Dune and David Lynch, and, uh, and you know, the production history of that. That to me is a very interesting cycle for Villeneuve because if he can succeed on that and make Dune part two, which we'll never see, I can count on that. I think Villeneuve will leave the franchise game and he'll go back to the likes of Sicario, he'll go back to the likes of, of making like Incendies, he, he will make films like Enema. I'm not going to say the scale will be down, but I think that he won't make the 200 million dollar budgets. Nolan. I think he might need to start fresh. I think he might need to go to the Ben and Wheatley, uh, you know, idea and, and make something like, I feel, you know, a feel England just make something so down to earth and so restrained and so organic and limited of, of ability. I want to see what Neil, Nolan's a, um, able of now. I'm not, I, I'm sort of, I got to the point where I get tired of directors hiding behind stunts and shit like that. Like, it's interesting to watch Tom Cruise climb up a mountain or fly off a helicopter. And they're like, yeah, that's cool. But at the end of the day, I want to see what you can do with the cinema with the most restrained hands tied behind your back. And I, I, want, I want to see them make something incredibly interesting because with anime, I think that's my favourite Villeneuve film. Maybe because that's me personally. I like going into a film and trying to get something out of it. I don't know. But I find that when a director restrained and he has no money, that's where you'll get the biggest form of someone who's got art and I think who can make something of art because it goes back and I hate to fucking bring this back to this but when we look at Homemade, right? Homemade is the biggest one is that you have directors there who have made, who have won Oscars, who have won Caesars, who have won, uh, you know, Palm d'Ors, who have won the Golden Lion and then they're making, on a, stru- sorry, a shoestring budget, shit of that quality I find to be the most patronising, abysmal attempt at what a film crew really does for these people. Now, I'm not, I don't want Christopher Nolan to go to his, to his fucking second home in Barbados or wherever, he's, wherever he fucking lives and make a, a quarantine film with his kids. I'm not wanting that. But I'd like Christopher Nolan to back away, to take what he tried to do with Dunkirk and make a very restrained, minute, but character-centric story with very little CGI and really showcase what he's about. Because Doodlebug, even that, had this evolution of filmmaking involved by not paying anyone fuck all for seven days a week for six months or two years straight and then making sort of this interesting sort of idea with with animation and with two set cameras and put them into one frame. You know... (laughs) I don't think Nolan has ever made, a, well, maybe he has with Memento, but even then it's a sort of an experimental piece. For me personally, I just get to the point, Nolan needs to cut out all this sort of spectacular bullshit and get to the point, and I think he needs to take it out of Villeneuve's uh, you know, manifest. In the same conversation, Villeneuve needs to take it out of Nolan's book and look at that I don't think the franchise game is something that is there to help the author anymore maybe for one or two times it will do, but for Villeneuve, go back to making this cynical approach of mankind and do what you're good at. Because I think those two directors, as much as everyone likes to sort of compare them, I think they're mostly so definitely intertwined. It's unbelievable. I just think
1: from what you're all saying, I just, I feel like it's too late in his career to even go back. As much as I would like to see Christopher Nolan do something more restrained, um, If he did something different, I wouldn't let him him do a horror film because it would be so fucking loud that every sound would be a jump scare. But I think he just now, partly it's just the way he's been received critically and this fandom he's got that, like you said way at the beginning of the the podcast, he always wants to top himself. He wants to go, how can I take, well, how can I take narrative and scope further? And we know that Tenet's not going to make its money back due to the circumstances. But I just can't see him being at the level that he is, with terms of how much money he gets and how much blank cheque he gets. That he's not going to keep thinking I need to keep going bigger and bigger. Maybe not bigger. I don't think he's going to get a bigger budget than this again. But I just can't see him dropping this stick of I need to do something interesting with the narrative. You know, from a mental, he's had. He's just always wanted to do something slightly different, which is a shame because like, just watching Insomnia. And it's just, you know, it's not generic, it's just a, it's a, it's a solid detective thriller that doesn't try to chuck in any bullshit to trick its audience. There's no stupid reveals or anything like that where you have to second guess the entire film. Um, it's just a well-made thriller, which is why I like The Prestige so much, although that does have a lot of bullshit in it. I think it's more focused. It's characters, the ones that are actually well-written, have a bit more depth, and it's still trying to show an interesting story. And ever since that story has just become the focus and everything else has but it, and scope's gone even bigger, which to reiterate, I really like Christopher Nolan's films. And I still like this film, but it's just kind of the antithesis of everything that's went been starting to go wrong. Since if I think back to The Dark Knight Rises, I've never wanted to watch that again. So I think it was such a mess. And to re- if this is the point that his career starts to change, I'm surprised that it wasn't after The Dark Knight Rises. I mean, it's probably been so long. I don't remember how well received or not it was, but I remember there was a lot of backlash, which is how badly written that film was. And I don't know if he managed to maybe escape that backlash because he wasn't the sole credited writer on it. Whereas, in this he is the sole writer on it, would I like to see him do James Bond. I wouldn't be against it. I think it'd be it'd be the similar kind of feeling as when I see these up and coming directors get chucked into the superhero game so quickly. But I think at this point we've had so many films from Christopher Nolan and he's had quite a long career at this point that it's not the end of the world to see him go do a franchise again. Going back to, and I'll pronounce Villeneuve in an even weirder way, because I know we said Blade Runner was a franchise, but because it, was, it wasn't it was a huge bomb, but it wasn't a success, I'm surprised that he's even getting Dune. There's no way Dune's going to make even close to getting its money back, even I think regardless of coronavirus or lockdown I don't see a film like June making back what I imagine is quite a high budget so I think we'll see him go back to do smaller films but there's just something about where Christopher Nolan has managed to get himself as a filmmaker and the respect that he's garnered and as I think Roy said this film is getting pretty good reviews there's a lot of mixed reviews but there's hardly any you know outright this is a terrible film all the reviews still have a kind of semblance of it has its good aspects it's just missing the mark in a few Spots, and I just don't know if Warner Brothers are willing to let him go due to how much audience, like how much of an audience he can bring in. But again, I'm not sure. I'm um, just a point that this was so long ago that I wanted to bring back. We, we talked about car chases so long ago, but this plays into if you look, watch any of the promotional material, and they do this with a lot of directors. But I like the car chase in the film, but it's they treat it in all the promotional material like he invented the fucking car. Like, like he's the first person to ever shut down a highway, which is a Matrix Reloaded did that, guys, like, over 15 years ago now. And it's in service of this car chase where half the scene is just nothing's happening, really. They're just doing this weird kind of stunt. But he gets this, when Edgar Wright did the car chase, it started Baby Driver, which is one of my favorite car chases in recent memory. People don't talk about that. Like, he's made the greatest set piece in history. He just gets this... And it's part, what I said right at the start, I can't tell if Christopher Nolan writes films because he has an interesting idea or he just wants to have a cool set piece. Because did he have an idea like, oh, I want to crash a plane into a, a real area, which they did an airplane 40 years ago and it looked just as good. So he's a bit behind on that. But and the, I just don't understand why he can't, I don't know if it's him that has the pressure of trying to top himself with each film or it's the studio that are pushing him to do it. And I don't think we'll ever know that. We talked about this before the podcast, if we think this film is cut down at all. Because I remember before its runtime was announced, we heard rumours it was over three hours long. And I wonder how true that was because there are elements that feel like it was cut. And I don't know if that's going to be because they're going to release uh, maybe after lockdown, whatever that is, after coronavirus has gone, there's going to be... Not even a director's cut, but like an extended cut that makes the film easier to follow, um, not to take the discussion in a whole new direction. But I was just curious if anyone had thoughts on that.
0: I'll just say really quickly, sorry to interrupt. Um, I, I think, first of all, about the Wachowskis, they actually made 15 miles of interstate. So, I mean, can we really compare? Not really, obviously. The Wachowskis did a better job. Uh, second of all, um, no one talks about the Edgar Wright thing, baby driver. Let's keep that it is. I think that's right. <laughs> so, let's not talk about that anymore. But seriously, I will have another extra hole in my ass if Christopher Nolan ever makes a horror film. Seriously. That man will never be able to make a horror film. I've never seen anything, where, I mean, in all question, not to go back, cause I'm sorry not to, to go on about your point, Kyle, but where can that man go except for science fiction? Because there's nothing, because I think every other genre, unfortunately, it just, it makes him claustrophobic because he can only work with certain conventions. At least with science fiction, the man can say, right, time travel version, fuck it, let's just go with it, let's do something with it. And he gets away with it because the convention allows him to. With horror, you can't do that. You just, you just cannot do, do it. He didn't get away with it The Dark Knight Rises. There's no way he can get, get away with it in horror. we just going to go back on about it's release. This man, I think, as much as that's an interesting conspiracy theory to have, um, and I think it is a conspiracy theory... I think th- I think this was always going to be two hours forty-five or whatever the fuck it is. I think it's I think it's one fifty-three actually, so it's about uh, two and a half hours. And yes, I think I think George's going to allude to it in a little bit about feeling that like there's some there's something missing. To me, I just think it's just underwhelming in general. And I, I think I think people are going to look for that. And I think and there's no disrespect to George or anyone who thinks about that. I, I think you're fair enough, but I think people will look for that because the film in itself is actually incredibly underwhelming with its set pieces. And I and I have this. I don't think there's anything missing from a film. There's probably, there's probably a few deleted scenes. We'll never see them because he's not like that. He doesn't do audio commentaries, which I find I think it's fucking fascinating to look at the man himself, actually, because this is a man who's meant to save cinema. He is the saviour of, of our time, people. He's released tenor in, this, in the wake of coronavirus so he can get paid. He's our saviour. But the man doesn't do audio commentaries on his DVD and Blu-rays. Now ask me and i know people probably won't like to but if you're asking me that to me is a walking contradiction if i've ever seen one or I haven't heard one i think it's bullshit the whole idea of what Nolan presents himself as it's just horse shit i really do i mean the man contradicts himself all the time how can you be a, a cinema savior yet you still shoot on film that's fucking practically dead get a red camera just shoot on digital what are you waiting for you can still shoot on film, but nobody, no cinema is going to show it on 70mm except for a bar of few in England and in America. If that is defining the cinema experience, then we're all fucked because we're never going to be able to see it. It's the same shoot of Ang Lee's Gemini Man. Oh, there's only four cinemas in the entire universe that can show it. What's the point? What is Seriously, like, what is the point? If I can't see it the way I'm going to, you're meant to, see, meant to be seeing it, then don't release it. It's just pointless. Like, there's a, there's a there's a manifesto. There's an ideology. I can get. I can root behind that. If you don't, if you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. But like, come on. Like, like there's there's a reason. Again, there's a reason why <laughs> we don't live in the past. I mean, some poor bastards do, but a lot of people don't. You know, and you know, to spite this man, I'm gonna watch when this comes out. I'm gonna watch it on my phone. Fuck it. I'm gonna watch it on my iPad. I'm not going to have him dictate me. Where I don't, I, I pay for my media. Where I cannot watch it, Lynch. I'll take a book. I'll, you know, I'll be like, well, you know, it's David Lynch. I'm going to watch Last Lost Highway or Bullet and Drive, four K on my phone. I'm not going to do that to the bloke. But fuck, fuck this, fuck Nolan. I'm not. I'm not. In, I'm seriously. I'm. I'm. I'm beyond done with this sort of bullshit tirade of, and it's not to anyone in the in the chat. Don't worry. it's just that I'm just tired of this bullshit tirade of, you know. Nolan you know, wants to live by this, and we you know we got to respect that. No, he's making film for an audience. If the audience can't see it and they can't fucking hear it, he's failed. And I, where again, wherever he goes from it, I'm not really bothered at this point. <laughs> I, do, I just I don't want to sound so cynical, but I can't help it, Kyle. And you've done that to me. But just to move on again to the um, to what we'll see more of it. I think this is it. I don't think I don't. What else could be left on the cutting room floor? Maybe an hour worth of depth that probably should have been in the film maybe definitely
2: not definitely not and <laughs> i'm of the opinion that some of it's missing but it's definitely not character stuff
0: what would you say is missing then Do you think a set piece is missing
2: i don't think a set piece it's just some of the transitions especially in the opening act don't i can't remember if it was carl or rory said that the, the spy stuff seems a bit all over the place and um this this will probably be the first comparison to this ever made but it reminds me of um, Hellboy the recent one you know where not you know where Hellboy had it had this weird quality of where no scene seemed to follow on from the other it just seemed odd and you couldn't quite pinpoint it but there was definitely a thing where it just something didn't feel right and it's not as bad in this don't get me wrong but there was a couple where it it's just like a natural feeling where you get and there's it just doesn't seem in the rhythm that it should be and there's one specific point i'm just going to briefly mention it so in the opening bit where he gets explained this inversion he she says try to pick up the bullet so he goes to try and pick up the bullet and he can't do it and she says oh well you have to drop the bullet and then it quickly cuts back to him and he lifts the bullet so i was confused straight away i'm like does he physically have to drop the bullet Or does he have to imagine that he's dropped the bullet and then he can reverse it? But then that's confused. I'm not going to go into spoilers, but that's confused by other stuff later on, where between the difference between is it like actually physically there, or is it more of a kind of the way you perceive it, like something like Arrival? It's not physical uh, manipulation of time, it's the way they actually perceive time. Spoilers for Arrival, but it's four years old. So I'll uh, let myself off on that one. But yeah, it's more stuff in this. It's more the transitions and stuff where it feels like... I'm not saying it's like, oh, half an hour's missing. But I'm pretty sure before this was due to come out that was taught it was going to be like 2 hours 50 and it's two and a half hours like on the dot. So for me, it's more like maybe 10 minutes. It might just be like little scenes that like fill in maybe some of the exposition. To me, to me anyway, maybe I'm trying to make excuses for the guy because I quite like him. But to me... This seemed uncharacteristically choppy and I don't think we could ever say that about any of his films. They've never been choppy, I don't think. Like Even if you don't like the guy, you wouldn't come out of it and say it's an absolute mess. Whereas this feels choppy. It could be deliberately, maybe not so short. I'm not into the whole conspiracy that they deliberately made it choppy to get people back and then obviously get more money. No, I don't believe that. But I do think maybe they've had to shorten it to get it into cinemas an earlier date because obviously there's been turmoil over the release date. Maybe they have to shorten the running times or something. I don't know, but yeah, to me it seems like there maybe might be something missing, but I don't, I don't think we'll ever see. I don't think that we be a director's cut or anything.
0: I know we we're gonna have to wrap up, so I don't want to go on and on, but I do have to mention this. It's weird that you mentioned the jarring because the the one the one thing I felt was like. What was the Aaron Tiller Johnson character? And I don't give a shit if this is spoilers. If you've got eyes and you can read, read the fucking quotes on the, on, the, on the poster. You'll see He's his name.
2: Awful in it, by the way. The he accent is, awful in it. is
0: like it, it's like it's Tom Hardy. it's like his his brother who hasn't like you know been in the basement for twenty five years? Like, if you're gonna mimic him, like at least back, like get higher the bloke, It was like, what the fuck is going on? And then it was like, I could understand what that character sort of. Is in the film for it's a placeholder for something, yeah, fair enough, whatever. But like to leave it two hours and I'm like, who is he? And then it's revealed to something else, of something else, of something else. I'm like, oh, I was I'm just, I'm done. I, that was a point where I'm like, I'm done, I'm out, just gonna watch Skittles on the screen for three hours and just let it blow my mind. Like, I'm back in Speed Racer, here we go, let's let's enjoy it because he is the pinnacle issue. And I think he, uh, not him personally, but I think the overall film is that. When he arrives in this film, until it ends, and we get Travis Scott's song on, I was like, "Okay, that's my biggest issue." That whole film, none of it makes sense on every level. And the fact is that I'm not—we're not, not going to spoil it, but Rory, we need to have a chat about this because I need to—I need to know if what you said was right or not. Because before we started this, you alluded to that you said a character dies the final act. Is that right? I don't think he does. And, and it, if, if it that, definitely
2: is alluded to.
0: 100% because for me I was like I, I was so quick of how it was edited and I was like fucking hell it was like Born and I was like Jesus Christ and that's, Paul I me, mean,
2: that's what I mean about some of the stuff some of it is there's one in the opening scene as well which I kind of guessed and then it comes back and I'm like oh okay so I was right but it was only from like a quick glance like it was only because oh. I've got like a trained eye for that sort of thing
0: I, I, but I, I was generally paying so much attention to it because I was literally trying to critique it at every spot to try and find something I enjoyed. And that moment happens. And I was like, I just, I didn't, I couldn't understand. I couldn't differentiate between two characters, not John, not John David Washington's character, the other two who were involved in that. I couldn't differentiate between what was happening. And I know one thing happened and that pulse was gone. And then something else happened and then that pulse was bad. And then all of a sudden, and I'm going to say pulse. I'm not actually, like, I'm being quite like, I'm not on the nose there. I mean, you know, I read between the lines. But then towards the end, I was like, what? Um, but no, I, I basically when you said that at the beginning, I was like, what? Did I miss something? And I'm, I generally did then because I, it's just the fact of like, I think, I think, well, actually, again then, George, you might be right then. I think you are right. I think. I think, he wanted, I think he shot it in a way where it was quite on the nose and then throughout this lockdown has gone back in and tried to make it a little bit more jarring to contextually feel the, the, the intensity and atmosphere of it. And I think he's probably done what he needed to do, granted, but I think he's made it even more so problematic in the way of being able to sort of travel that narrative because I, I, I'll be honest, I did not see that quite literally.
2: We'll, we'll, um, we'll go through it we will we'll try not to swallow it for the uh, yeah for everyone else. So we'll do I,
0: I, I, if, if if we go into on one more topic, I'll keep here till three o'clock. I can't. So <laughs> just if, if, to if quickly
1: add in, I, yeah, I do go. think that's conspiracy theory. I don't think I think I don't think there's an extra cut over anything. I was just curious, not to, um, if you think well, we've already got over it. But what I was thinking was like, would the studio try and backpedal and make money? I don't think Christopher Nolan's in a situation that he needs to make cuts of his films, and if he did, I think. Like no matter what you add to this film, I, you said it best, short, The film's a fucking mess, which is the last thing I expect of a Christopher Nolan film. Say what you say well about his films—they can be confusing, they can be all over, they can be in places all over the place, they can be hokey, they can be stupid, but they're never a mess. You can still go, okay, I saw what happened. Even Interstellar, which has that final act, which is really baffling, I, I still love Interstellar. You can still make head or tails of it, but this—just the way it's edited, the way it's shot so much of it feels like a complete just mess together mess and even if I kept watching over and over again if I watched all these and they're already starting to pop up you know ten ending explain half an hour of videos where it's just going to be somebody repeating the Wikipedia plotline it's just it's going to be like that bit in The Simpsons where they've got the puzzle and she puts one piece in and goes oh it's a donkey it doesn't matter how you work it out it's still going to be the same film no matter what you add into it I don't think even if this film made perfect sense what is left there you're still left with characters that you don't care about and a plot line that equates to something we'd seen a superhero film 10 years ago when all they had was oh the world's gonna end and we're so sick of that that we just even though I liked this film I just expected something more from somebody who's given over 200 million dollars and is considered one of the greatest filmmakers in recent memory to do something more than a generic villain wants to block the world plot which we see in James Bond even done better in James Bond in recent memory I think that is the last thing I've got to say, or I think we'll be here till tomorrow morning trying to work out why we think this
2: is the way. Apart from hashtag release the Nolan cut. I I would rather rather cut myself. You
0: know, not not, um, because I know we need to go, but I have to say this now. Maybe that's not actually out of the realm of possibility where this was edited down to meet a mandate of getting into more screens. Maybe Warner Brothers said to Nolan, we'll hit that mandate in August, but the thing is we've got to cut. Let's say 20 minutes out of it, we can get more screenings per hour, or per day, sorry. Maybe that literally is something. Maybe he, maybe he has taken a bit of the bullet. Who knows? But wouldn't it be a revelation to see the Nolan cut on HBO Max? Oh, what, what, a, what, a, what a dream. Just to end up I on my I know I'd rather watch that than the <laughs> fucking cut. <slide it>, <laughs> ah, you say, you're saying that now, George, come on. When it, when it drops on HBO Max, I think you, you know be the first one to be like guys it's amazing obviously with lennon cohen's hallelujah it's perfectly advertised as well what are uh, what are on the nose um an advertisement from Zack snyder who would have thought but just to get my overall thoughts on the film i mean i can't really sort of explain it more than i have done um the, a mess is a great sort of response that I ha- i've had to this film it is a mess it's all over the place it's weird it's wacky it's underwhelming. It's poorly. It's poorly written throughout. It's boring at times. Uh, nothing here is elevated. Nothing here is heightened. It's nothing to add to the zeitgeist. Uh, it doesn't do anything in Nolan's filmography. Um, it doesn't do anything with Patterson, who I think he's good, like Rory said, but I think he has no humour in the film. I think he, he. I think he's generally sort of like very, very shaky at times. Becky is one note written in sort of a misogynist tale. Branner for me, is probably the standout with what he does because he's actually venomous. The inversion is shit. Sorry, I'll be more... <laughs> the inversion is poor. Uh, mytholo- mythology is boring. Um, the colour palette at times is, 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 is just uneventful. The action set pieces get progressively worse. The final one is, is barbaric, It's pointless, it's rubbish. The, the more I think about this film, the more you know, I'm generally excited to watch The New Mutants. I I want to like this film. I want to like Nolan. I like Nolan's filmography for the for the most part. For me, this is one of his, maybe not the worst film, but this is one of a very select few where it's downright terrible in my eyes. And the rating is going to drop to, to, to the bottom of the barrel by by the end of the week. A week I can just I can just tell. To round out cast, we would like to end on some of our latest film or TV recommendations. Um, in the in the vein of talking about Noah, and I'll, I suppose I'll t- I'll bite the bullet this week and I'll um I've always felt uh, Um again when I said about recommending going back to bare bones and going back to the basics. There's two things I think I could recommend for Nolan, but I'm going to go for the first one. I think that it probably will mentor this week. Guy Pearce, Joe Pantoliano, um, Marianne uh, Carrie Moss, early 2000s work, just focused on narrative, very experimental, like Villainous Enemy. A really engaging piece with Guy Pierce has a wonderful iconography, really engaging stuff. Nolan writing at his best doesn't need excess bullshit to get him through it, and it works a treat. It's a shame that not many people talk about Memento in the same vein it probably should be lauded as. But nevertheless, even as 20 years old at this point now, it can be watched in, in, in more than three different ways. I would highly recommend picking. Um, I don't know if it does it on the Blu-ray, but if you buy the collection edition, collector's edition on DVD, there's like this white case. You get three discs. You can actually watch the film in the way it's meant to be seen, and then you can watch it as the narrative fixed as it would be in a narrative feature normal, and then you can watch a mixture of the both. Um, very interesting to watch if you're into film studies, media studies, and just want to have a look an experiment of of what plot and narrative just by a simple edit can can change a film. Really, really interesting piece of work. I just hope after Tenet that uh, Nolan goes back down to that roots. Otherwise, you know, don't know where he's going to go next. But, uh George, what have you got for us this week?
2: So if uh, Tenet didn't really do it for you, I've got a better spy film starring Michael Caine, who we didn't actually mention is in this film. He's in it for one scene in Tenet. But, um yeah, I'm re- recommending The Chris which is from 1965, where he plays a, uh, like a secret agent called Harry Palmer. And he's tasked with working out this case where scientists are inexplicably resigning from their positions. So it's kind of like a cat and mouse thing with the British Secret Service, a shady uh, like dealer, and amongst other stuff. Say so for a comparison, it's kind of like a much has been made of it it's like a response to James Bond in the 60s, and it actually shares a producer. But I'd say it's more like the middle ground between James Bond and John le Carré's novels, where it's got more of the kind of mundane aspects of spy work, but there's still a little bit of the Bond stuff in it. I'm not going to obviously spoil it for anyone, but there's there's that Bond silliness in there towards the end. So yeah, anyone who loves their spy stuff, this is like a really good bare bones spy thriller with it's got. Like, great charm. The writing's good. Kane's really good in it as well. So, yeah, I'd say give it a watch if you can. It's called The Ip Chris.
3: Rory, your recommendations this week? Well, I've got two this week. First things first is uh, Lovecraft Country on HBO, which is their new kind of, I guess, flagship show for right now. It's a really interesting mashup between a kind of civil rights drama and then, like, a Lovecraftian cosmic horror. And that sounds really weird to describe, but it's. I'm only two episodes in, uh, but it's working quite well so far, mixing all that together. There are some great performances in there. So I definitely recommend that. And my second recommendation is gonna be a film called Private Road, which came out in 1971 and stars Bruce Robinson, who directed Nell and I, but is uh, the starring role in this. And it's kind of a mashup between with Nell and I and it's very reminiscent of Joanna Hogg's The Souvenir as well about kind of youth in limbo in London in the early 70s. If you're interested in With Nell and I it definitely serves as kind of a blueprint for that film and in its own right it's a very nice kind of stripped down romantic drama so I definitely recommend that and that's on the BFI player. And Kyle finally what
1: have
0: you got recommended for us this week?
1: So mine is a sort of a cheat. It's a series of TV programs slash films and it's the um, the Up series, not the Pixar film. It's the Michael Apted documentary which started in 1964. Um, for those who aren't familiar with it, basically in 1964 they made, a, it was like a one-off of a, I think an ITV show where they spoke to a select group of seven-year-olds from different backgrounds and different classes because they wanted to, they had There's a saying that is, if you give me a child at seven, I will show you the man. And they wanted to see if what seven-year-olds were like at seven, if like what they had to say about the world. So initially when they did it, they just wanted to to talk to kids and see what stupid things they would say. But Michael Apt had decided to go back seven years later and ask them the same questions. And he's been going back every seven years since then. So last year, 2019, they did 63 up. And he's still continuing to do it. Um, I wouldn't recommend what I've done is watching every single one back to back in a week because a lot of it relies on the format that when you go to watch it, it's been seven years since you watched the last one. So there's a lot of here's the same clips over and over again. So when you're watching it in back to back, you are seeing a lot of repetitive nature. But they only get better as each go on because they start to become more not cinematic, but there's a lot more, you know, form given to them rather than just clips presented and these people saying things like the last one that I watched was 63 up last year. There's a lot more production value to it. There's a lot more music and stuff like that. But it's it's really interesting when the show decides to rather than engage with what these people have been up to, Michael Apted, who can be really brutal when he's interviewing people, knows what class these people are from and wants to ask them about how they feel about other people in the show because there's people from upper class and there's people who are from lower class. So that's when the show is its most interesting. It definitely has its issues. It definitely can be a bit there's a, definitely an element of, I don't know what the word I'm looking for, but it's like a benefit porn. They said that about the show that it was like the scheme that came on in Scotland ages ago where it just filmed these people in lower, lower class. You know what they say about like Jeremy Kyle show and stuff like that. There's an element of that, but I still highly recommend maybe watching them a year apart if you can get a hand of them or even just watch the last one because it shows so much of the previous clip. You don't need to watch every single one. But yeah, so I, I guess I'd recommend 63 Up, which came out last year.
0: Well, that is it for this week's special episode of Papa Casco Ring to Net. Where can we find everyone on social media?
3: Rory? Uh, you can find me on Letterboxd at rosa227. George?
2: You can find me on Letterbox at George Lewis and on Twitter at George Lewis 97 Lewis has got an extra S in both of them.
1: And Kyle? You can find me at Letterboxd and on Twitter with at Kyle Gaff.
0: So it's just my name without any Y. And you can find me on both Letterboxd and Twitter with my cynical takes uh, with the username at Jack Luke Sharp on both. You can find all the latest releases of film and television reviewed at www.clapperltd.co.uk and find our social links on Clapper at Facebook and at ClapperLTD on Twitter and Letterboxd. Make sure to rate, subscribe or follow to be notified when the next episode comes out. Thank you all for listening. we are back next week to discuss all things cinema.